0: He did an MRI of my lumbar spine, my sacral spine, and he saw a Tarlov cyst in my spine, and I had the cyst aspirated. The incision caused the, the cerebrospinal fluid to start to leak out of me, out of my spinal canal.
1: Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error chronic illnesses and other life matters a note of caution some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests hello humanity I'm Scott Simpson host of medical error interviews when Melissa Schiff had surgery on a cyst in her back the surgeon nicked her spinal fluid canal, causing it to leak spinal fluid. This medical error would lead to more errors and medical harm for Melissa. As Melissa wrote to me after the interview, she said, I get internal tremors, non-epileptic seizures, slurred speech, sometimes I lose the ability to move my limbs and need to be carried, and of course can barely stand or walk. The health system proved useless and essentially abandoned Melissa to suffer without medical care. As a result of her own research and determination, Melissa eventually got a correct diagnosis, one that could be treated with surgery. But then she was faced with a healthcare system ignorant about the disease and the only qualified surgeon in prison for murdering his wife. But Melissa is not one to give up easily. Listen to find out how Melissa is working hard and horizontally from her bed to get the surgery she needs to have any hope of leading a normal, vertical life. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, or any of the other major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Just go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error or living with complex chronic illness, medically marginalized diseases. You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com now here's my interview with melissa schiff and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by melissa's experiences with the healthcare system awesome thanks melissa so where did you grow up and what was your childhood like
0: I grew up here in Toronto um, in the uh, 1970s and it was a different time, (laughs) kind of an idyllic childhood with uh, summers in Muskoka and water skiing and swimming and dancing, very active young kid. Yeah, but um, my family definitely had an underlying theme of illness. So um, there was always that sort of in the background haunting us.
1: Does that relate to your current health?
0: It does, um, but it started with my brother getting type 1 diabetes when I was three and a half. My father had um, a severe, uh, a rare form of arthritis called ankylosing spondylitis. Yeah, my mother was healthy until she got Guillain-Barre when I got ME. So that was, um, that was a coincidence. I don't think it was so coincidental, but you never know.
1: Okay. So you had this great childhood in Toronto and up in the Muskokas, which is a great region, cottage region for people who don't know. And then where did your life take you?
0: Well, I was pretty healthy. um, Although in retrospect, uh, thinking of your, you know, incredible interview with Jeff Wood, who had a symptom in childhood that I had as well. He had um, pain in his legs and feet, and I did too, Um, but it was attributed to growing pains, right? I remember my mother constantly massaging my legs because they were always painful. So who knows, I could have had, or I could have right now, tethered cord. We don't know yet, so we'll see. And then um, when I was 16, like a lot of teenagers, I got mono. That started uh, my health saga um, because I never recovered fully from that initial blow of the Epstein-Barr virus. I started to get symptoms right after the, the acute stage ended of, of ME. From 16 to 18, I um, was not well. Um, I was struggling to go to school and struggling with weakness. And over time, progressively sort of got worse. Um, And I noticed that with any exertion, like I was a skier, you know, I was still trying to do things like that. But that would land me in bed for a good couple of days. Then we started looking for in the medical community. And I was first diagnosed with post infectious neuromyasthenia, um, which is another term for chronic fatigue syndrome or ME. Just told to go home and rest and, you know, carry on with my life and try as best as I can to be a functioning person, um, which wasn't helpful, <laughs> uh, because I didn't realize that, you know, the post-exertional malaise, if you overdo things, you can make yourself worse. And that's what happened to me. And then when I was 18, I was teaching sailing at a summer camp and I caught a virus and collapsed on the sailing dock. They had to carry back my bunk, and my parents had to come get me. And then that was the nosedive into the the ME saga that lasted a good ten years, and I wound up in a wheelchair and um, uh, really had to p- pace myself. The typical ME um, symptoms where you know doing i had to choose between what what i was going to do was i going to attempt to go down and eat at the table for lunch or was i going to attempt to take a shower
1: and just for the folks who are listening who don't know what ME stands for, it's for myalgic encephalomyelitis. And the hallmark symptom of it is a dysfunctional and often delayed response to any sort of exertion. So that's why when Melissa says about taking a shower can mess her up, that's mm-hmm. what's going on. Exactly, yeah.
0: You know, I was, I I lived that way for a decade I was still living at home and trying to figure out what I could do to give myself a better quality of life and finally I happened upon a uh, neurologist in Scotland named um, uh, Professor Behan so he he had um, a protocol for sleep and many people with me have sleep disorders and i was one of them i went for a sleep study at the western uh, hospital here in toronto and they found that i was not getting restorative sleep so you know if you're in bed i mean the paradox right is that you're in bed all the time and uh, people think oh This person must be well rested. All she does is lay in bed and, oh no, you're not well rested at all because you're not getting restorative sleep. So you actually wake up in worse shape than when you go to bed. So mornings were hellish. And he came up with a sleep protocol and medications that um, helped me dramatically. So once I started on that protocol, a uh, matter of like, I I'm, would I'm, say 10 days, my life turned around. I woke up, I could function again. Mind you, you know, I had to s- take it slowly and and rebuild my body and, um, and get to a place where I could take care of myself again because before that I couldn't do that. Um, so it took it took a bit of time but i was got back to about 90% functional
1: wow that's quite incredible
0: yeah and i was one of the lucky ones because as we know not everyone gets out of this and can resume any of their previous you know abilities so i went away to art school drove down to boston a friend of mine was repatriating to the states she's an artist and i have art in my family my father's an artist not a not a professional artist but um my aunt went to the school of visual arts in new york my uncle wasn't artist, so um i kind of always knew that's what i wanted to do never could uh fathom how to make a career out of it but um you know I enrolled at the museum school in Boston and found the place where I belonged. So um, I was, you know, incredibly happy and just really, I really found what I wanted to do. And I started doing video installation work, installation work, sculpture, photography, performance to New York when I graduated. I started uh, my art career and I got lucky. Um, a curator from the Jewish Museum in New York came to one of my performances called the Times Square Seder featuring the Ball soup kitchen. And uh, they, uh, they bought, they acquired one of my video sculptures from that, uh, that piece and that launched my career. So I got lucky. So that piece is in their permanent collection. And I went on to do some, some really exciting works after that. But I always knew I had to be careful because I would get viruses that would never go away. <laughs> and I would be sick for a long time. So, and I could never do cardiovascular activity. So i, I always had ME underlying. You know, it was there, it was just, you know, manageable. So I was able to function, but I, you know, I, I learned how to live with it. But I wasn't bedridden anymore.
1: Yeah, and, and it sounds like you're being quite productive. Your your career is on an upward trajectory. Mm-hmm. And then I'm assuming... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, something uh, rather dramatic. Happened actually. I was working uh, on projects. Um, we got a, a Shirk Grant, uh, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, Canada. It's, it's a it's a federal grant um, for uh, research in the arts. I got a grant in two thousand and eleven, and was working on that. Um, and then we. We moved to New York. Uh, my husband had a sabbatical, so we moved to New York uh, in 2013. Oh, and I had had a child as well. So um, that was that was also remarkable. I was I was afraid to get pregnant because I just you know I didn't want to mess with my body. I was afraid that something might go amiss if something, you know, if something were to go wrong, or if it would reactivate Miami in some way. Um, And I actually recall something happening during my pregnancy, um, which now that I look back at it, was a definite clue as to what would happen to me going forward. That was in 2008, I was pregnant and uh, Nuit Blanche had just started in two, I think 2007, right? And so we went out to, to Nuit Blanche that, that night.
1: For folks who aren't familiar with what Nuit Blanche is?
0: Oh, it's an all night art party where the city uh, commissions works um, all uh, around the city and different locations and Artists often do site-specific installations. I was invited to do, we launched in uh, in 2008, so it must have been 2009 that this happened when I was pregnant. So we went to see um, something down at Varsity Stadium, and I was quite pregnant at the time. Um, And... I'm standing there, and I, f- I almost felt like my left hip or the ligaments in my groin fell. There was something going on with my ligaments, and I, but then I just chalked it up to being pregnant. You know, I mean, when you're pregnant, your body adjusts, your ligaments get lax, which they need to be to deliver, um, to give birth, and then you know I. I was doing yoga for, to prepare for the, the birth, and was also was feeling that area was not quite right. But then I had a very healthy birth, a healthy child, and nothing seemed amiss, or too, too much amiss. Then we moved to New York, and like all New Yorkers, you walk a ton, right? Um, I was walking down to get my kid in East Village and all of a sudden my left hip just flared up and I was in agony. That was when I was about 47 and in, that was 2013. So I started looking for answers and I didn't think that it was me related. I just thought I had you know, something wrong with that part of my body. So I went to, you know, massage therapists, you name it, acupuncturists, um, alternative medicine, uh, Reiki, naturopathic medicine, and nothing was helping. So I was suffering with that pain for a good three years. We moved back to Toronto. I got another grant uh, in 2015 for a larger project. And and, um, I always say that the Canadian government has um, supported me for my art in a way that they had never supported me for my health. (laughs) That's the other way around. You need to be healthy in order to make culture and art. Mm -hmm. Um, We had moved back home to Toronto And I was still looking for answers for why I was getting all this pain. And I landed up in the wrong hands. My GP recommended I see uh, someone to test my nerves. And then that person, that doctor, recommended that I see a neuroradiologist. And he did an MRI of my lumbar spine my sacral spine and he saw a tarloff cyst in my spine he had done a study at johns hopkins with over 300 people where he aspirated the cyst and filled it with fibrin glue and the pain went away or drastically reduced the pain and the symptoms that i was was complaining of so I thought this was a very legitimate study and I went down to the Toronto Western Hospital I live very close to it I walked down and I had the cysts aspirated instead of him putting the fibrin glue in he he put in a long-lasting anesthetic I Came back home, my mom brought me back home and I was instructed to rest for the day. I laid in bed and I didn't feel so badly. So I got up and I went to collect Sasha, my my son, he was eight at the time, uh, from his extracurricular drama class. And I noticed that I started to get an occipital headache. Now, I've never had headaches with ME. i would never had a history of headaches. An occipital headache is at the very back of the skull. It's where the cranium meets the cervical spine. This was very strange. So I, I went back home and I laid down. And in a few hours, it went away. So I thought, okay, you know, I'm good to go. I'm going to get up again. So I got up to make dinner. Same thing happens the occipital headache comes back. So I immediately uh, emailed the the doctor, the neuroradiologist who did the procedure, and I told him what was happening. And he said, oh, you know, it's probably a tension headache. Just go, you know, relax, just, you know, take it easy. So I did, Uh, went to sleep, got up the next morning, felt fine. As the day progressed, I went to to my office at uh, St. George, George and Bloor. Met with one of my staff. We were at the point in this project we were um, about to create a virtual world out of all of the uh, virtual, uh, of all the digital um, architecture that we created. And I put on the headgear. I got the headache again. The headache came back. This time it was. Even worse, I felt like I was going to vomit. I felt like I was going to fall over. So I somehow managed to get home. I walked home and I felt like the world was warped. I had disequilibrium. I felt incredibly ill. So I went home. I emailed the doctor again and he said I should go to the ER, but I didn't. I didn't because I had to get on a plane in two days to give uh, an endowed lecture in New York. And I thought, okay, you know what, this is just, this will go away. So the next two days were similar, um, but the day I got had to, go to get on the plane, um, I felt a little better, like I wasn't getting the headache as soon, it was happening a little later in the day. But then on the, the flight, I literally felt like my brain was rattling around in my skull. So why, what was happening? I had a CSF leak. So a CSF leak is, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, so CFS stands for cerebral <laughs> spinal fluid.
0: So that procedure had caused a cerebrospinal fluid leak. I had a leak in my dura, a hole a hole in my dura. He did not realize that he had created what he when he put that needle in me, there was communication between that cyst and the cerebrospinal fluid and that the the incision caused the, the cerebrospinal fluid to start to leak out of me out of my spinal canal. And I had every symptom of a CSF leak. That's classic. So I went to the, um, when I got home from New York, oh, I managed to give the lecture, by the way. I, yeah, I managed to give the lecture. um, And then I think what happened is my dura actually healed on that fifth day, it usually takes about five days for something like that to heal in the body. So I think that's what happened. So I was able to give the lecture and I was able to get myself back on a plane home. But the next morning I woke up and my head felt like it was exploding. So something was not right. And that's when I went into the emergency room And that's when they said, you have a CSF leak. But in retrospect, I believe that was the first misdiagnosis. Because I had the opposite headache then. I had this huge pressure headache. I believe what happened is I had healed. Then I went into rebound high pressure, which can happen. Because um, then there's an overproduction. The body overproduces because it's leaking. So it it, it ramps up production and uh, you get too much cerebrospinal fluid in your body and in your brain. And cerebrospinal fluid is what protects and floats your brain. And it it's a crucial part of the body. I had no idea I had not, no knowledge of this part of the anatomy. I mean, why would you, right?
1: Yeah, so maybe tell folks sort of the hallmark symptom of cerebral spinal fluid leaks.
0: So that, yeah, this, the hallmark symptoms are that that is that occipital headache because there's not enough fluid to float your brain. Your brain is literally sinking. And the fact that I felt my brain rattling around in, on the plane, yeah, that makes sense, right? Because if there's nothing protecting or floating or, you know, brain up, then it's, it's not going to rattle around.
1: I've yeah. also heard that uh, typically that headaches come on as the day goes on because people are vertical, And so, as you said, you lie down and it sort of fades away.
0: Yeah, because then, like, everything flows. There's no gravity pulling anything down. The cerebral spinal fluid can travel back to the brain. And so the longer I was standing up during the day, the more symptomatic I would get. So I had a, you know, classic case. What was... More complicated was what happened to me when I got home because the symptoms started to change. That's when I believe I went into rebound high pressure. But I went went down to the ER and they diagnosed me with low pressure, so a CSF leak. So um, they immediately suggested I get blood patches and blood patches are when they take some of your blood and they inject it into the um spinal space um well uh, uh, not through the dura so everyone's heard of an epidural right so that is when they freeze you outside of the spinal canal And sometimes when you get an epidural, they can nick the spinal canal and create a CSF leak and they immediately do a blood patch and that happens a lot of women when they're, you know, get an epidural when they're pregnant. So blood patches are, you know, relatively safe. So I had two of those on the assumption that I was still leaking. I, my symptoms did not go away. In fact, they got worse and I had blurred vision pressure in my head and disequilibrium nothing they did helped me in fact it made me worse Um, my symptoms were worse i was less and less able to even sit up or do anything since november 7th 2017 i have been suffering and trying to find answers as to what is going on and what happened to me on that fateful day.
1: Okay, so So, we're coming up to three years of not getting an answer.
0: Exactly, yeah. Trying to figure this out, why aren't I getting better? The doctors at the Western were completely baffled about my case they sent me to a headache specialist. And I said, you know, this doesn't make sense. I never had headaches before. This all started with this procedure that went horribly wrong. So I had to be patient and detective and look into other um, causes or, or, you you know, other treatments and other doctors um i ended up going down to duke where um they are pressure experts and csf experts and i had two more blood patches and that those made me worse and then they did an opening pressure so an opening pressure means they take the CSF pressure by inserting like a catheter into your um, spinal canal. And they, they indeed found that the, the case was that I had high pressure, not low pressure. Um, yeah, so they did the wrong thing at the wrong time. But I do have to back up uh, one step because the neurologist that I saw here in Toronto he also, there was also another uh, clue. When I would sit up, my heart rate would go a little crazy. It would climb and climb to like the 120s. And so he sent me to get an EKG, but that showed nothing wrong. But that was actually very abnormal. Um, I had POTS.
1: Sorry, EKG won't show POTS because it's not a diagnostic tool for POTS. Yeah, and you were just uh, about to explain what the acronym POTS stands for.
0: Sure, it's postural orthostatic. Uh, Orthostatic means standing. Uh, Tachycardia means high heart rate uh, syndrome, so postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. The definitive test to diagnose POTS is a tilt table test. Um, I should have been sent for a tilt table test immediately. I was not. So again, um, a misdiagnosis. And this was still in uh, 2017, so early enough, before more damage had been done to me. It's really sad that I was not uh, properly diagnosed at that time because I might have had a better outcome. Um, So I go down to Duke. I get all this work done on me. They put three holes, more holes in my dura. They do high volume drains to see if that works because a lot of people with high pressure benefit from draining of the cerebral spinal fluid. It didn't help me. It helped me for maybe an hour and then all my symptoms returned. So that summer was um, one of trial and error with, um, with medications like diuretics, like Diamox, and nothing helped. So um, I was suffering you know, every day with ho- these horrible pressure headaches.
1: So folks have an idea how disabled were you at that point?
0: I could not um, walk down a hall without like having to hold on to the walls because the disequilibrium was so severe and the pressure in my head was so severe. I could the only activity that gave me any relief was swimming. That to me, something is going on here that has to be, you know, explained somehow because I actually did get some relief when I swam when I was flat again and with no gravity. Then we went down the path of high pressure. So they saw, the neuroradiologist saw um, that I had something called venous stenosis in, my, in the right side of my brain. The blood drains out of your, your head in the transverse venous sinus. And mine had a severe narrowing. It was quite narrow. So the theory there was that that is what's causing a high pressure in my head but the people in toronto were not about to do anything to you know to explore that avenue so again i went down to the states there's a doctor there who put stents in and i had a stent put in the headache at that time was like that 25 pound weight at the back of my head the stent did take that away but it gave me more problems. And after that, I started to, vet, to develop neck pain. This was very strange. Like why was I all of a sudden getting this severe pain in the right side of my neck and these strange, you know, other pressure symptoms. And then I started to get more, i started to get any symptoms so i started to develop the weakness the bo- the total body weakness and i couldn't swim anymore um I, uh, then i started to get really scared like really scared and my sleep started to get completely messed up i was like had fallen even farther off a cliff if that could be imaginable i, I was really having a really really hard time. I I was, you know, at a loss with what to do.
1: Sorry, so now your health has deteriorated even more so now you're in severe ME?
0: I was I had ME again, like then I recognized, well maybe this is connected to my ME. I I think I was in denial for that because these all, all of these symptoms were so, uh, so different than my symptoms in my early 20s, my late teens and early 20s. So I, I did not want to go there. I did not want to make the connection, but it was undeniable at this point. And I had also watched Jennifer Brea's uh, documentary, on Un- Unrest, And I saw, you know, that I was becoming more and more like the people in the movie. So we went to the Mayo Clinic. They immediately wanted to do more lumbar punctures. And I said, no, no, you're not touching my spine again. Okay. This only makes me worse. And then a neurosurgeon there suggested that I do the tilt table test. And sure enough, I had, I had, I had outrageous POTS. Um, now, POTS, as many people know, is a comorbid condition with ME. Uh, many people with ME also have POTS. In my early 20s, I didn't have, I, I wasn't diagnosed with POTS, and I didn't have any um, knowledge about it. So this was all new to me. What happens with POTS is when you're lying down, um, your heart rate is normal, but when you sit up and you stand up, uh, it accelerates and it keeps rising and going up and up and up and it doesn't settle down. Most you know, healthy people, your heart rate will go up a bit um, to, to push the blood to the brain and then it settles down. Mine goes up to 140, and then I'll pass out. So that accounts for why I was having so many problems standing, but it didn't account for everything. I was sent home from the Mayo Clinic, told to uh, uh, follow the POTS protocol, compression socks, more salt in the diet, increased water intake to increase blood Uh, plasma levels uh, and blood volume and nothing was helping. You know, I I also tried to find a doctor here which was incredibly hard to do. There are only two pot specialists in all of Ontario. I did get into uh, one of them at Women's College but uh, she did not uh, follow up with me. I remember going to the office and saying, I need treatment immediately. I need to start the medications. And I saw her in December of 2019. And I did not get a follow up appointment until September 2020.
1: Okay. And so that was just very recently.
0: So I, I, I just felt like this is, this is humane. This is ridiculous. I cannot uh, go for, what, like nine months without treatment. So again, I started doing research. And a friend of a friend had recommended that I see Dr.
1: Kaufman. Tell folks who Dr. Kaufman is. And
0: uh, Dr. Kaufman was Jeff Wood's uh, internist and Jen Brea's intern. Dr. Kaufman runs a center um, for, it's called the Center for Complex Diseases. He's moved his practice up to Seattle now, and he works with Dr. Cheta and a new neurologist. Dr. Kaufman is one of the most wonderful physicians you'll ever find ever (laughs) because he listens. He is passionate about figuring out what is truly at the root of, of your condition. And I luckily got in to see him last March uh, with a televisit and uh, he spent the first Two hour, he spent two hours taking my history and he wanted to know everything about any uh, head injury I had as a child, you know, to piece together this complex uh, story and, and, um, and get me on the road to recovery. Uh, so he said the very first thing that needed to be done is to treat the POTS. <laughs> And so we started on, on different medications, propranolol and metadrine. And, uh, and although they did bring my heart rate down, um, they did not give me any more orthostatic tolerance. So I could not, I still could not stand. Yeah. So that was all this summer. But in the initial meeting with him, he said, Melissa, I highly suspect that you have craniocervical instability.
1: And for folks who mm. don't know what that term is, CCI is the acronym. What is CCI?
0: So, craniocervical instability is a condition um, usually caused by a connective tissue disease. And it's usually caused. Co- Caused by Ehlers Danlos syndrome, uh, whereby the ligaments in the craniocervical junction become lax. The craniocervical junction is the superhighway of our bodies, all of our nerves and blood and connective uh, tissue of the uh, brainstem, that's where the brainstem resides. The brainstem connects to the spinal cord. So if anything is amiss up there at the craniocervical junction where the cranium meets the cervical spine, then you're pretty much fucked. <laughs> um, and it explains um, all my symptoms pretty much. You can't stand up, you have blurred vision, you can have GI problems, you get POTS because POTS is caused from brainstem compression. ME, you have, uh, you know, immune dysfunction because the brainstem is part of the immune system. So there's so much complexity in, in this area of the body. And if it's not working properly, then your autonomic nervous system is completely off. Your autonomic nervous system controls your heart, your sleep, your breathing,
1: bowel movements.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, this was surreal. Like, what was going on? How, How did I go from functioning three years ago? to being completely bedridden, uh, unable to take care of myself. Basically, you know, the only thing I can really do uh, is still get in the bath. Yeah, that's about it. (laughs) I have severe brain fog, so position I'm in most of the day.
1: Yeah, so for folks who are, are listening to us, Melissa is laying down and you spend 98, 99% of your time having to live horizontally.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: So here Dr. Kaufman says, Hey, I think it's CCI.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, he wants my imaging to be sent to Dr. Paolo Bolognese in New York, who is one of four neurosurgeons in the Western world who is qualified to diagnose and to treat this condition. There is a lack of expertise in this area of medicine. And in Canada, there is a vacuum. This condition is not even recognized by most neurosurgeons can't even get a diagnosis here. Uh, People are traveling to Barcelona to get a diagnosis. Volinese is in New York, and Gillette is in Barcelona, Dr. Patel is in South Carolina, and Dr. Henderson is in Baltimore. The three out of the four require standing MRIs for diagnosis. Canada has one standing MRI. It's in Kamloops, BC, and it is substandard. Those doctors will not accept the imaging from that machine, right?
1: So even if you were able to drag your beaten-up body all the way to British Columbia and stand in that machine, the right, right. The, uh, the images they get are, are not useful? No,
0: no. So, uh, yeah, this is... a. It, it's a human rights problem. People are not being uh, given, given any, any form of care for this condition. But I do have to mention that there was one neurosurgeon in Toronto that was performing the necessary surgery for cranial cervical instability. And he was mostly serving the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome community. People might recall the name Mohammed Shamji. Uh, he was a neurosurgeon that actually trained under Dr. Henderson in Baltimore. He was performing, he was about to perform one of these fusion surgeries when the police came into the hospital to arrest him for the murder of his wife. So in that moment, he not only killed his wife, he killed any hope of people like me getting surgery in Canada because no one has replaced him. So this is an enormous problem. Who came up to perform the surgery on that woman who was going in, in under Shamji? Dr. Henderson they flew him up to, or I don't know how that happened, um, but he came up and he performed the necessary surgery. So that kind of tells us that there isn't really anyone here that is qualified to do it or who is doing it.
1: I was mentioning to a friend who has ME the other day that I was going to be interviewing you. And she reminded me, and I totally forgotten that there are doctors in Canada who, for Down syndrome kids, who are going to compete at the Special Olympics, they have to have a CCI imaging to make sure they don't have CCI. So it sounds like those doctors should be able to at least diagnose.
0: Yes, um, and they they will diagnose CCI in a subset of people who have trauma to their their craniocervical junction due to accidents um, and certain other conditions which they're versed in. But for people like me who are a new new subset of patients um, that they're finding with connective tissue disease, they're not recognizing that yet. They're so far behind. So so maybe, you know, okay, maybe they do have the chops to perform the operation, but they will not recognize patients with ME with this condition. And I, in fact, sent my imaging, the same in imaging that was used to diagnose, that Dr. Bolognese diagnosed me with, to the neurologist. That that um, I initially saw, and he's a neurosurgeon as well. Uh, I said, you know, he wanted to look at the imaging again um, because I got in touch with them again after, you know, I, I had a suspicion that this was CCI. And he said, I can see absolutely nothing wrong with your imaging. So if you don't have the right person, the right eyes looking at your imaging, then you're not gonna get anywhere. The neurosurgeons has specific measurements, morphometrics that they take to diagnose. And it turns out that my skull is sitting too far forward on my cervical spine. And I have something called retroflexed odontoid. And I also have something called basilar invagination. And all of these are pathological. A retroflex odontoid means that the, the little peg that's sticking up to hold your uh, C1 in place, it's poking forward too far too far. I also have an unusual thing where my odontoid is broken. There's too much movement. The odontoid keeps the cervical spine uh, from move, from too much movement.
1: So that sort of brings us up to the present. So what are your hopes?
0: Well, I have this diagnosis from Dr. Bolognese in New York, and I am waiting for a date for surgery with him. He performs invasive traction before he does surgery, so he'll put two bolts in the side of my head, a handle over my head, sort of like the headphones that you're wearing and then hoist my my cranium up to find the right position for for my cranium and usually people have a, a positive result at about you know anywhere from 25 to 35 pounds and then they know where the fusion surgery should should be like they use that measurement Okay. So I'm just I'm just waiting.
1: Uh, so you're waiting to find out what your surgery date will be. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And I know uh, when I was speaking with Jeff that he wore a collar sometimes, which would help relieve some of his symptoms. This is pre pre surgery for him.
0: Yeah, I have um, I have a cervical collar as well. It allows me to sit at the table for dinner for a short amount of time, but I get incredibly lightheaded. The world is warped. It does not does not feel right. So in his case, I think he had like um, cranial um, sinking. So he had more of the vertical instability. Mine might be vertical rotational as well as horizontal because they are finding that my skull is too far forward so that's translational so it might be a little more complicated in my case and that might account for why the the collar isn't working but i, I remember you know at a certain point the collar didn't work for him either right i mean he he couldn't he literally he literally could not raise his head off his pillow at a certain point
1: and I think both Jeff and Jen, subsequent to their CCI surgery, then had tethered cord surgery. How does that intersect with your treatment?
0: Um, we don't know. Happens um, with people that have the CCI uh, surgery that tethered cord happens as a result of the surgery. Like eight, I think something like 85% of people... With the fusion surgery, then on to need the tether cord surgery because we're, or the skull is lifted, but it's a consequence of the surgery.
1: I kind of thought that this is me trying to logically figure it out that having the tether cord surgery first would be sort of the way to go, but it sounds like the tether cord symptoms occur because of the CCI surgery.
0: Yes, yes that's what happens i mean sometimes there's a cult tethered cord so the tether the the cord is tethered but they just can't see it in the imaging so the tethered cord could be there prior to needing the fusion surgery and yeah so it, it it can go hand in hand and usually i mean i think in the case of jeff he he probably had it as a child right he probably had the tethered cord And if he had the tethered cord release surgery first, then the CCI wouldn't have happened. Right. And so
1: circling back to Jeff's uh, memories of having foot pain when he was a child and then connects that to tethered cord as an adult, are you making that same connection?
0: I mean, they don't see it in my imaging right now, but it doesn't mean that I don't have it. There is this condition of occult tether. Cord. It's called occult tether cord, so it's it's invisible. Like, well, it's there, but they can't see it in the imaging until they go in.
1: Oh, uh, okay.
0: Yeah, some pe- people are finding help, uh, stem cell injections, um, prolotherapy, regen- which is you know all kind of regenerative medicine um, to heal those ligaments. If you're at a certain stage, then that kind of therapy is not going to help. And I was, you know, toying with whether or not to go down that path before a surgery. So, you know, if traction doesn't help before as, as, a, as a dress rehearsal for surgery and I'm rejected for the surgery, then that would be the route that I would take. But at this point, I'm, I just feel that I need to be seen by a neurosurgeon and assessed just to know exactly how severe I am.
1: Okay, um, so it sounds like you need to have the assessment with the traction first before you get a date for a surgery.
0: Yes, but the fact that my numbers are so pathological is it's more than likely that I will need the surgery because of just looking at those numbers and my symptoms.
1: Okay. And so do you have any idea how long you have to continue to suffer before you can get a surgery?
0: They said possibly in December. So a few months.
1: Oh, wow. Wow. That's sooner than I had sort of thought. So that sounds very hopeful, especially in the age of, you know, the COVID pandemic. COVID.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm pretty eager to get this moving. <laughs> it's been three horrific years. I've been suffering for a very long time.
1: So what helps you get through each day?
0: Well, my family and my son. You know, I'm a mom. I can't perform my mom, you know, role Anymore. I can't do much for my child, but I'm here for him emotionally. That give, gives me purpose. You know, in last March, I was lost at sea. I mean, I, I did not have much hope. You know, I was, I was really, I, had, I was not being cared for. I had no one, uh, before Dr. Kaufman, I had no one managing my care. So I was in really, I was in really, really bad shape, both, you know, physically and emotionally.
1: Yeah, that's really a, a rough spot to be in, to be so physically sick and disabled and to have the healthcare system basically say, there's nothing we can or, or even will try to do for you. Yeah,
0: it's, it's a serious issue. And, you know, I mean, there are close, I think, what is the number of ME, uh, you know, people diagnosed with ME in Canada?
1: Uh, 580,000. So
0: I believe that every person with that, that diagnosis deserves to be tested for CCI you know, I mean, it's just a tragedy that we now know that this, the underlying issues for ME are likely a connective tissue disease, and and that it can progress to people being completely dysfunctional. You know, we're not malingerers, we want to get back to life. We all had lives before this happened to us. And the fact that you know, the Ministry of Health has not gotten it together to even have a a standing MRI to do a proper diagnostic of this. And the fact that you have to wait for a year to even get into an ME clinic, it's just a travesty. You know, it's just horrific. I'm on Facebook pages where people are what to do. I mean, I'm one of the fortunate people that can afford to go to the States and get care. You know, we have a two-tiered system here. We have one for, you know, the general public and then a private system for people who can afford it to, to leave the country.
1: And I would also divide our healthcare system another way too. One way, it is pretty good if you have something simple, like a broken arm. And as somebody who's living with HIV, I can also tell you if you have HIV, it's a great system. But if you have ME or fibro or multiple chemical sensitivity or chronic Lyme, then you are medically marginalized.
0: I mean, I didn't get into the whole um, chapter of being diagnosed as having a psychosomatic illness, right? You know, I was, it, when I was 18, I was sent to a
1: psychiatrist. That seems to be the default for many, many doctors when they don't know what's wrong with the patient. The patient's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Melissa, you're going to tell me something about a study out of Sweden?
0: Yeah, there was a study um, published on August 28th, 2020. It's the uh, Braggie Bertelsen study out of Sweden that has made the connection between hypermobility, ME, and craniocervical cervical instability. And they uh, studied 229 people with ME eighty five percent I believe that's the the number were found to have pro and problems with the, the cranio cervical junction so uh, this is this is a really really huge you know study that that makes that that link between these these comorbid conditions and hopefully doctors will now read that and take it seriously and start to look for that diagnosis and and at the end of the study they said this could be an entire paradigm shift for diagnostics.
1: Wow yeah Yeah. that sounds like a really important study so I'll include the link to that study as well in the show notes so people can find that and take it to their doctors too. Well, Melissa, thanks for sharing your journey. I, I will really be pulling for you for getting your surgery, and I hope it really uh, makes a vast improvement in your life like it did for Jeff and Jen.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm on the the, the other side. I'm still on the dark side. I haven't, uh, you know, when you interviewed Jeff, he was, uh, he had come out of it and it's cured. Um, so there's still a lot of uh, fear, you know, that I have, you know, whether or not this is going to be, the cure for me the way it was for for Jeff and Jen. So that's that's the unknown. So it's pretty scary. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your program and uh, spreading the awareness of uh, what's going on.
1: Well, thanks for for sharing. And if folks wanted to connect with you on social media, and if you're into that, uh, I Mm -hmm. can include those links in the show notes, but for the folks who are listening, how would they connect with you?
0: Oh, I'm on Facebook at Melissa Schiff. I kind of dropped off social media for the three years. I was, I just wanted to get better <laughs> for it. You know, I just thought, I thought I was gonna get better and then re-emerge. Um, I was uh, alone and kept this to myself for, for three years, apart from my close, you know, circle friend. You know, now that I see that it's a larger problem, beyond me, um, that people really need to connect the dots and see that a lot of people are suffering needlessly. Everyone should, should be aware of this, so.
1: Well, a big thank you to Melissa Schiff for sharing her experiences in the medical care system. I'm sure we're all pulling forward that she gets the surgery she needs and the verticalness she desires. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself be kind to others if you would like to support the podcast you can subscribe on itunes podbean spotify or any of the other major podcast platforms you can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews just go to patreon.com slash interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error or living with complex chronic illness, medically marginalized diseases, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.